I invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious Word to Revelation chapter 2. We'll be looking together at verses 18 through 29 this morning as we look at the Judge Not Church, these letters of Jesus to the churches through John, His servant. Uh, and tonight, to, to, this morning, we look at Revelation 2, verses 18 through 29. I'll invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of the perfect words of our sovereign God. Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refused to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead." And all the churches will know that I am He who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, do not hold this teaching who have not learned what some called call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Oh Lord, help us. Help us to look with eyes of understanding. Help us to have hearts that are fertile soil for the Word. Lord, help us not only to hear, but to hear and obey what You have revealed about Yourself in Your Word. Lord, help us to know what it means to say that Jesus is the Son of God with eyes like flaming fire and feet of burnished bronze. And Lord, help us. Help us to follow and serve and worship and honor and spread the glory of His name to the ends of the earth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It seems that the verse judge not in Matthew 7 verse 1 is the only verse that some people know in the entire Bible. You have some conversations with people and anytime you say that something is wrong or something shouldn't be done, uh, the response is often, well, don't you know the Bible says judge not. I saw an image one time that I thought was a good summary of the way people treat that verse and they're going to put it on the screen. And that is, 
judge not is circled and everything else in the Bible is crossed out. Because to take it the way they take it, as though judge not in Matthew 7 1 means never make any judgments about anything, would require the rest of the Bible to be marked out. So what does judge not mean in Matthew 7 1? Well, certainly it means and it condemns hypercritical judgment. That is, some people are fault finders. Some people are just looking to judge other people over all kinds of things to gain an air of superiority. That is certainly condemned. But not only hypercritical judgment, but also it condemns hypocritical judgment. Hypocritical judgment is when I do the exact same thing that I condemn you for doing. And that happens often. It's a way we sort of make ourselves feel better about ourselves. And it also condemns self-righteous judgment. That means if I say that you are doing something wrong, I do it to make myself feel superior. When the truth of the Bible is that in the sight of God, we are all equally away from His kingdom. What we all need is grace. Not that every sin has the same impact culturally, it doesn't. But it tells us in the Bible that violating the law of God at one spot makes us guilty of all. So we have no superiority over anyone else, but not only hypercritical judgment, hypocritical judgment, and self-righteous judgment, it also condemns motive and heart judgment. That is, I don't just judge what somebody does or what they say. I act like I can know their motive behind what they do and say. I act like I can know their heart. That is attempting to take the place of God. There is a God, and I'm not Him, and neither are you. And so all of those types of judgment are absolutely expressly condemned. But outside of that... The Apostle Paul, for instance, tells us in his letter to the church at Thessalonica, judge all things. Hold fast to what is good and abstain from what is evil. In fact, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, right after it says, judge not that you be not judged in verse 1, it goes down in verse 6 of the same section to say, do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. And if we skip down just a few more verses to Matthew 7, beginning in verse 15, it says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. You will judge them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Are figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So in Matthew 7 itself, it calls for us to be a people who make all kinds of judgments. We make judgments about false prophets. How do we make those judgments? based on what God has revealed about Himself and His Word. We make judgments between good fruit and bad fruit. How? Because God has revealed Himself in His Word. Now, I point that out because 
what the church at Thyatira is condemned for is that they will not make right judgments. You remember the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus was orthodox and would definitely condemn those who were teaching false things, but the church at Ephesus was rebuked for having lost its first love. So it's possible to be orthodox and to call false teaching or or, or false actions what they are and yet not do it in a loving way. Not do do it because of your love for Christ. But it's also possible to be commended for love as the church in Thyatira is, while at the same time being condemned for a lack of judgment. If the church at Ephesus was the all-head-no-heart church, we're saying that the church in Thyatira was the judge-not church. As we're going to see, there's all kinds of positive things going on in the church, but the church is unwilling to judge in the way the Bible calls us to judge. As we think about the church at Thyatira, look here at the verse 18, the first part of verse 18. And, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write. Now I'll remind you that uh, the Apostle John has been exiled to the Isle of Patmos because he would not say Caesar is Lord because only Jesus is Lord. So he's a political exile on the Isle of Patmos, but we find him still worshiping the Lord on the Lord's Day. And the Bible says God comes to him and Jesus Himself gives John the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a revelation of Himself. There's an incredible vision that paints a picture of what Christ is like. And then that message is applied to seven churches. The messages are to go in a in a pathway of the mail carrier from one to another, but those seven churches are representative of problems in all kinds of churches. And then Revelation as a whole is a peek at the way everything is summed up in Christ for the purpose of making us bold to live for Christ here and now. And each one of these cities has a particular context and a particular problem and particular things that they are commended for, but there's a way in which Christ is counseling them to live differently and then giving them a promise based on who He is. Now, Thyatira is the least important of all the seven cities from a cultural way of thinking. It was not an economic center. It was not a religious center. There was all kinds of worship of all kinds of gods, but, but none was centralized there. It wasn't a, a stronghold of religion for anybody. It wasn't a political center. It wasn't like it was a seat of politics. It was not a stronghold of emperor worship. There weren't a lot of antagonistic Jews there as we've seen in some of the other uh, ch- uh, churches in particular cities. That the city of Thyatira was basically known only for one thing. And we don't know a lot about it outside of that one thing. And that it was a place of tradesmen and merchants. 
In fact, it was known for its trade guilds. We, we might say trade unions. There were various groups of workers that produced particular products. Lydia was from here. She was a seller of purple. She was a part of a particular group of people that were selling particular things. And they formed these unions around that. Now the problem for Christians was, like it is a lot of times in business today, the thinking was, well, you've got to be a part of the community, so you've just got to do the things that business people have to do. And yet, at this time, there were patron gods of various uh, uh, unions. Apollos was the major god, who was the patron god of Thyatira. There was a female god of the area. And, and, and so all of this... Uh, all these trades and these unions and social meals you had together were also tied in with a, a tacit endorsement of worship patterns. And sometimes they ended up in sexual immorality, just like business trips sometimes do today. Now, here's what we have to understand. That just like in all these other cities, there are things about the cultural context that made it difficult to live as a Christian. And they were called to live with a clear understanding that Jesus is Lord. And so they couldn't just go along and pretend as though everything was okay. Even though people were saying, well, you believe these are false gods. They don't even exist anyway. Who cares if you have a meal and, and they raise a glass to, to a God that you know that doesn't even exist? Who Just go along. Just fit in. And this is the struggle going on. Just compromise a bit. And there's a particular person in this church who became emblematic of the compromise that Christians were facing based on teachings that she was uh, giving to the church. See, it was difficult at this time to be accepted in the business community if you didn't give allegiance and participation in the various trade guilds. Well, we're reminded that the first thing in each one of these letters to the churches is that there's something pulled back out of the vision that Christ gave him of himself in the beginning. In other words, he is the Lord of the church, and here's a particular aspect of his lordship that this church needs to remember. We see that here, the Lord of the church, the all-knowing royal judge. Look at verse 18, the second part. The words of the Son of God. Now, not only here, but also later in uh, this letter to the church at Thyatira, there are mentions of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a royal psalm that talks about the Son of God who will rule and reign and defeat the enemies. And there are those now who, who rage against Him, but, but He's in the heavens and He laughs and He will ultimately reign. So it's a reference here to Psalm 2. These are the words of the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Notice what it says about Him. Who has eyes like a flame of fire. Meaning, He sees right through everything. Nothing escapes Him. His judgment is perfect. And He sees not just actions, but He sees motives and intents of the heart. They're all 
kinds of times where we think we are getting away with something and in reality we are never getting away with anything. And some of you who have been treated terribly by someone and you're gnawing inside because you're thinking they got away with it. No, they did not. There is one who has eyes like a flame of fire and he sees through everything. He has perfect judgment and perfect wisdom and he sees right through all. And then notice what else it says about him. It says that, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, uh, in the vision, in one fourteen, it talked about the eyes of the flame of fire. And in verse 16, it talks about the feet are like burnished bronze. What's this talking about? What's he referring to here? He's certainly referring to a sense of stability, but he's also referring to the purity that it takes to produce the burnished bronze. Purity and power. Now get that together. There is one who sees right through everything, whose knowledge and wisdom is perfect, and he's also marked by purity and power. This is the one who is the Son of God, the royal Son, the all-knowing royal judge. Now that's vital for those in the church at Thyatira to remember. Because they are unwilling to judge in the way they should. And they need to remember there's an ultimate judge that they and everyone else answers to. And they also need to remember when they face the consequences for what they do, that ultimately, the royal judge makes all things right for his people in the end. And some of you desperately need to hear that today in the midst of your circumstance. It is absolutely, fundamentally, completely true. It is the very hope we cling to in all that we face in life that Jesus is the all-knowing royal judge. And the only way any of us are united to Him by faith is grace. And rebels against His sovereign grace do not ultimately get away with anything. But I also want you to see in verse 19, He talks about what's right in the church. And what's right in the church is it was increasing in works of faith and love. Now when you think about this church, you don't think about a little dead church over here barely making it. You think about a church that's vibrant, that is, that is active, that, that has people who obviously display a passion for what they're doing. There is a zeal, but notice verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. It seems to me like their love was expressed in service, their faith was expressed in patient endurance, which is another way to talk about hope. Faith, hope, and love, these primary qualities are evident in the context of this church. But notice what it also says, and your latter works exceed the first. In other words, these things are increasing. You aren't just planed out in this way. These are wonderful things to say about a church. Oh, that God would say that we are a a place where our works are, are marked by love and faith and servant and patient endurance, and they're increasing. Now, one of the things you notice as we study through these churches, 
Rarely is there all bad, all good. We are in a constant battle to walk in line with the Gospel. To be conformed into the image of Christ. And none of us who are in Christ are what we need to be. But we also don't forget that none of us who are in Christ are what we were apart from Him. There is a work of transformation going on and these are good things. This church would have been active. It would have been doing things. It would have been serving people. And it would have been done by people who were not, uh, f- f- uh, didn't have a frown on their face but had an excitement about what they're doing. But all is not well. You see, all is not what it appears on the outside. This is certainly the type of church that is applauded today. Vibrant and active with a lot going on and energy. But he also talks about what's wrong in the church. And he spends a long time there. What's wrong in the church is a failure to judge. Let let me put it to you this way. They are too tolerant. Now, tolerance today is the supreme virtue of all virtues. Supposedly. But people who talk about tolerance all the time today seem to be really intolerant of those who disagree with them. But they were too tolerant. But, but isn't tolerance a good thing? Well, yes. Just like judging is a good thing, and judging can be a bad thing, Tolerance is a good thing, and tolerance can be a bad thing. Well, how do we know the difference? God and the Bible. We haven't been left to our own to sort it out. There are countless ways in which all of us would do well to be far more tolerant than we are. There are all kinds of personal preferences where we are very intolerant, and and the spiritual way to respond is just get over yourself. But there are things in which we are to be intolerant. But we know the difference because of what God has said. Far too often we turn this upside down. We are intolerant regarding personal preferences. And we are too tolerant about matters of truth. That's to turn it on its head. That's to get it wrong on both ends. Look with me at verse 20. But, and this is the, that's a really strong uh, connector there in the Greek of contrast, the strongest, but I have this against you. That, or it could be translated, since you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, you're familiar with the term Jezebel. The the term Jezebel is a term that's even used sometimes today for somebody who's sort of lewd, somebody who is urging you to compromise. That's the way it's used here. Was Jezebel this woman's actual name? No. This is referring back to the Jezebel in the Bible from which we get those connotations about her. 
Jezebel, uh, we read about in the Old Testament, was the wife of King Ahab. She was the daughter of the king of Tyre and Sidon, who was the, the enemies of Israel. This was about the, the first half of the ninth century B.C. in the northern kingdom of Israel. And she married King Ahab. And so she's brought in to authority with her husband. Well, she's a Baal worshiper, the fertility god. And, and so she introduces Baal worship to the kingdom. And she talks Ahab into building an altar to Baal and also a, an Asherah, a female fertility god. Uh, the Greeks call it Aphrodite. We get the word aphrodisiac. You, you see all of this is, is tied together. And, and so she introduces it. She says, listen, you can worship Yahweh and Baal. We can have the best of all worlds. It's both and, not either or. Doesn't that sound tolerant? I'm not saying take away Yahweh. I'm just saying bring along Baal. But the problem was to express allegiance to Baal was to reject Yahweh based on what Yahweh said in the Bible. And she knew it all too well. And the same is true for many who speak the same language today. Oh, we don't care if you say Jesus is Savior. Just don't say He's the only Savior. Just say He's a Savior. You're a Savior. He works for you. No, we cannot say that. We are the very odd people who say this. We will defend your right to follow your religious convictions wherever you see fit. We will defend your religious liberty. Because we don't believe the government can make you a convert. So we don't want you to be forced into anything by the government. And at the same time, we will tell you, if the path you're following is not Jesus, you are doomed and damned. Because He is the only Savior. Both of those things. In one way, we're tolerant. In another way, we are intolerant. We will defend your right to follow your path, but we will tell you the truth. And the truth is, Jesus is the only way of salvation. Now this particular Jezebel, trying to get the people to compromise and to, to, to have syncretic worship here, to just mix it all together, she declares that she's a prophetess. That is, that she receives direct revelation from God, and usually in this kind of context, that means apart from the Scripture. I receive revelation from God apart from the Bible. In other words, she was self-taught, not apostle-taught. She was self-appointed rather than church-appointed. And she was self-justified rather than Christ-justified. She was her own authority unto herself. There was one time here years ago, we had a particular uh, vote where we were seeking congregational action on something, and it was unanimous except for one lady. So it passed, and so she made an appointment with us. It was me and Pastor Jeremy. She sat down with us, and she said, you know, I just want to tell you why I voted no. So, okay. She said, well, I'm a prophetess, and God told me to say no. And everybody else is wrong, and I'm right because God told me. And she looked at Pastor Jeremy, and she said, you look like you're doubting I'm a prophetess. 
And Jeremy said, in the only the way Jeremy can, oh, it's way beyond doubt. <laughs> you're not. She said, what do you mean? He said, you're not. You don't trump the Bible. If you don't have a biblical reason, the congregation's decided, it's over. And by the way, if you don't repent of what you're saying, we're going to have to church discipline you. You're not going to run around here saying you're a prophetess who receives revelation outside of the Bible and stand over the entire congregation with that because that is a claim that's a rebellion against Jesus because the, uh, the Bible says that God spoke in various ways and various times in the past, but in these last days He's spoken to us in His Son. We have the Word. Anything that you learn about God outside the Bible that matches the Bible, you've got the Bible. Anything you learn about God that doesn't match the Bible, that contradicts the Bible, is not true. You've got everything you need when we have the Word of God and we have one another. So this prophetess was claiming, oh no, I'm taking you to the deep things of God. The things you don't learn about in your church. I know that there are many ways and many paths and you can mix these things together. And the problem it tells us here is that they were tolerating it. They were tolerating this God-belittling, gospel-mocking of the true and living God in the church. They did not judge her false teaching. They tolerated it. And I can hear some people, well, who are we to judge? The people of God with the Bible. Oh, we should just love people. I mean, they may disagree, but it's okay. And you see this at all hands today. You see it on the authority of the Bible. One of the reasons why to become a member here, you have to say that you believe in the authority of the Bible. Because that's what we're building a church on. You don't pick and choose. You believe it's true, or you believe it's false. See it today with churches compromising on an issue like homosexuality? Listen to me, if, if the Bible is clear about anything, it's clear that marriage is between a man and a woman and the only appropriate sexual activity is in the context of a marriage with a man and a woman. Period. That's not, that's not gray area. Anybody compromising that is just simply fitting into the spirit of the age and is tolerant in the way the Bible condemns. Of course, the church for a long time is tolerated unbiblical divorce and ignored it. So there's all kinds of ways. Uh, churches tolerate uh, teaching that Jesus isn't the only way of salvation. Well, how can we know? Just follow your own path. No, all of that is rebellion against God and it's tolerating what God has told us not to tolerate. Look at verse 21. Well, and by the way, also notice how often false teaching is tied to sexual sin. I'm not going to spend a lot of time there, but it's throughout the Bible. We must not downplay Scripture, and we must not downplay the ordinary life of the church. That's the way you know the deep things of God. Not in any other way. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. This probably means that some people in the church went to her and confronted her, and she rejected what they had to say. Verse 22 and 23, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation. Now literally, it doesn't say sickbed, it just says bed, and it contrasts the sickbed with the adultery bed. And it is a judgment that's promised on her, uh, on her, not only those who commit physical adultery, but those who are committing spiritual adultery by embracing the compromise that she is calling them to. 
And then notice what, it, what else it says in verse 23, and I will strike her children dead. Now, that's not her physical children. It is the children who are the offspring of her false teaching. Those who have gone into spiritual adultery and are birthed in that and embrace it, they will be judged by God. And notice it says, verse 23, and all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart, who, who x-rays every act, thought, and motive, we could say. And I will give to each of you according to your works. Whether or not you're trusting in faith in Christ, and Christ is the object of your faith, or whether or not you're trusting in something else, something outside of Christ, some other idol, some other false uh, uh, worship, or some other activity. He is the one who searches the mind and the heart. We judge based on the truth that He has revealed. We are not the ultimate judge. We don't try to claim His place. We can't know the motives and intents of the heart. But under His authority, we are to say, based on what He has said, certain things are right and certain things are wrong. Certain things are true and certain things are false. Biblically, we are to hold our preferences lightly because of the Gospel. But biblically, we are to hold biblical truth to the end because of the Gospel. So if you go over to somebody's house and they serve some food that isn't necessarily your favorite, you ought to grin and eat it and thank, thank them for their hospitality. You don't go there and say, why would you serve me this junk? Because then they're going to be offended. That's a needless offense. You can eat food that you don't like in one particular time. Get over yourself. But in the course of that meal, you may say, Jesus is the only hope of your salvation. And they may get angry about that. And if they do, so be it. See the difference? Hold truth to the end because of the gospel. But that's also why we hold our preferences lightly because of the gospel. It's what Paul's talking about when I, he says, I became all things to all men. He's not saying that he compromised the truth. Absolutely the opposite is what he's saying. I just lay down all these preferential things so I speak the word of truth. And if it's an offense, it's an offense. I cannot back away from what is true. Notice Christ's counsel to the church in verses 24 and 25. It's this, hold fast to the truth. Verse 24, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, do not, who do not hold to this teaching, meaning the teaching of Jezebel, this is the majority of the church, who have not learned what some call, notice this, the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. It's the language of Acts 15, the Jerusalem council. In other words, what was said there was no idols and no immorality. That's what it stands uh, outside of that, just hold to the truth that you believe, and I'm not going to put any other burden on you. Just don't believe this stuff. But notice what it calls it. The deep things of Satan. Why does it call it that? Well, because certainly this Jezebel and those who followed her were running around saying, oh, I know what the church says, but we know the deep things of God. We've had revealed to us 
what's not in the Bible, but God has spoken it directly to us. We know it's okay to worship Yahweh and Baal. You can say Jesus is Lord and also say Baal is Lord. These are the deep things of God. And Jesus says, those are the deep things of Satan. And that's still true, by the way. If someone calls you to believe something that they say they received by a revelation outside of the Bible that contradicts the Bible, you can say, no, not the deep things of God. Those are the deep things of Satan. If somebody calls you a pathway that compromises the exclusivity of the Gospel of Jesus Christ and His Lordship, that is not the deep things of God. Those are the deep things of Satan. Now, the warning for all of us is that the deep things of Satan always usually try to pass themselves off as the deep things of God. But there's a simple way to not get on that path. Believe the book. Test everything by the book. And embed yourself in the church. A Bible-believing church that is committed to the truth of the Word of God and check everything by your accountability to the church based primarily on your commitment to Christ and the Word. Hold fast to the truth of the Word. Listen to me. You do not need anything outside of the Gospel that is told us in the Word of God and an accountable relationship in the church of God. The ordinary life of the church. You don't have to look for anything else. Just hold fast, he says, to what you have. Verse 25, only hold fast what you have until I come. In other words, you have the truth you need. Quit listening to voices outside of it. Hold fast to it. Do not compromise it. And by the way, he always ends with a promise. Look with me at verses 26-28. through The promise to the church. Victorious rule in the kingdom. Verse 26. The one who conquers, that is, prevails, victor, who is victorious. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. This is Psalm 2. Ruling over the nations and reigning with Christ, who is the messianic king. Verse 27. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit, that is the Spirit of Christ, says to the churches. Listen, he says. Now you may, you may follow this path. You may go the way I'm telling you and have a very difficult life, but understand the end is ruling and reigning with Jesus, the Messiah King, forever. There's a kingdom that knows no end. Don't trade it for any kingdoms here and now that will ultimately crumble. Keep your eyes on the promise of the victorious rule in the kingdom of all who are in Christ. And by the way, did you notice that? Verse 28, I will give Him the morning star. At the end of the Bible, in Revelation twenty-two sixteen, it says, I am the root and descendant of David. This is Jesus talking. The bright morning star. Which is a fulfillment of Numbers twenty-four seventeen, A star out of Jacob. A scepter out of Israel. Just as the star was over Jesus when He was born, 
the promise here in the end is of the ultimate rule of him as the king. And he says, I will give you the morning star. What does he mean? I will give you me in a way you have never known it before. Not just a place, but yes, a place. A new heavens, a new earth. But in the unhindered presence of the morning star. Christ is the only ultimate judge. We must serve Him by faith in love according to the truth of His Word, which is all that we need. And we hold fast to it, never compromising, knowing, knowing that no matter what happens in this life, ultimately it will bring the rule and reign of Christ and us with Him in the kingdom to come. Do you notice as we study through this that gospel balance only comes when Christ is at the center of our lives. When Christ is our aim. When Christ is not our aim, we go off in one direction or another. But the balance is only there as we fight to keep our aim on Christ. When we do, we're liberated. Because when anything other than Christ is our aim, we get our identity from something else. And so we're worried about what people think. We're, we're fretful. We're, we're concerned about this, that, and the other. But when Christ is at the center, He is our identity. And so we're liberated and freed. We can serve others. We can go to dangerous places. We can put ourselves in difficult situations because our hope is in the One who promised us to take Him with Him, ruling and reigning forever in a kingdom who will give us Himself. When you think like that, you think first of all about Christ. You think second of all about the church, the people of Christ, and you only think about yourself thinking, how can I serve Christ by serving the church and be an instrument of His kingdom here and now? But there is a battle every day that we all face as the Spirit of Jezebel whispers in our ear, both and, you can have it all. You can do what you want. And have Jesus too. But oh, that that will be checked, I pray. No, it's either or. If Jesus is Lord, nothing else is. And His voice, His Word, His truth is what matters now and forever. May we be a people who never repudiate Him by tolerating what He has called us never to tolerate. Let's pray.